0: The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at MHBible.org. Good morning, church family. So good to gather together this Sunday morning in worship. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them to the book of Genesis. If you knew, that's the very first book of your Bible, Genesis. And we're going to be starting this morning in chapter 17, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. As we open God's Word, let me pray for us, and I'm going to pray, as I know many of us have, and we've already mentioned it, for, for the situation going on in Ukraine. Um, I know it's, it's so heartbreaking to see some of the violence, and the, the passage that's come to mind this week, as I've thought about it, is the prayer in Second Chronicles of King Jehoshaphat when he cries out, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And I feel like that's that summed up so much of our feelings and my feelings this week. So let's, let's just pray one more time before we turn to God's word together. God, it is true when we look at the world around us and we see war and death and violence and, and people hurting. God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And as we have sung, you are a faithful God. You are the same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as you are today. So God, we cry out for peace, even where it seems like that would be so hard to do. God, we cry out for your church there in Ukraine that met this morning under such fear and violence, but still meets and exalts and praises and worships you. And God, we just pray for your mercy and for your grace to be present in such a hurting and hard situation there. God, would you be with us this morning? Would you open our hearts? Would you open our eyes this morning as we turn our attention to your word? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I want you to go back in your heads, if you could think back to February 2009, 13 years ago, February 2009, what was your life like? For some of you, you were like, I wasn't alive, I'm 12, all right, but... But February 2009, if you need a little like, okay, February 2009, that's a long time ago. What was going on in the world? All right. Um, President Obama had just been inaugurated a month before. He was the brand new president. We were still in the middle of the Great Recession. The stock market bottomed out a few weeks after February 2009. If you're a pop culture person, the top songs of the month of February 2009 were Taylor Swift's Love Story and Beyonce's Single Ladies. The top movie in the world was Taken, not Taken two, three, four, or 5, but the original one from way back then. For sports fans, the leading scorer on the Golden State Warriors was a guy named Steven Jackson. Steph Curry was the leading scorer in college, still that year. The San Francisco Giants were still in the middle of a 55-year championship drought and had never won a title since they moved to San Francisco in February of 2009. If you're a tech person, there was no Instagram, more people visited MySpace than YouTube, and there was no such thing as an iPad. Well, maybe some of you knew what an iPad was, but you weren't allowed to take it out of your top secret offices, or else you would have been heard. But most of us didn't know what an iPad was in February 2009. And if you think back to your own life, for me, I was dating my wife. We weren't married. I just started grad school. I was just a new pastor. A lot changes in 13 years. For a lot of you, you still have kids at home. For a lot of you, you, still ha- you had no kids. A lot changes. You're like, okay, why are you mentioning this? Are you just trying to make me feel old? No, I don't need to do that. You, your kids do that good enough. I don't need to remind you of that. But sometimes, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sometimes we read through scripture and we just think that it's one story that happens in a span of a couple weeks. Last week, Ricky walked us through the story of Sarah and Hagar with Ishmael being born to Hagar. And it finished off in chapter 16, verse 16, saying this, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. The very next verse, chapter 17, verse one, when Abram was 99 years old, olds. I just wanted to highlight 13 years because we jumped from last week to this week. We just skipped 13 years in history, which in the Bible, it's like, well, that was just one period. That's not a long time. But just think back to what your life was like 13 years ago. Abram has been living in silence from God. He's heard these promises from God that he would be a great nation, that he would possess this land, that he's had blessing. But he's just come from 13 years since the birth of Ishmael of of not hearing directly from God, of just serving and trying to follow God in the stillness, in the quiet. And so I just wanna bring our attention to just this tension, this rising tension in Abraham's life of is God gonna follow through on what he promised or not? Because it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. At this point when Abram is now 99, it's been 24 years since Genesis 12, when that promise and when the call came to him to leave his home and travel to this land. And in chapter 17, verse one, God appears to him again. He says this, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So God appears and he identifies himself with this name in in verse one. I am God Almighty. It's the word El Shaddai. This is the first time in scripture that God identifies himself as this. I'm the God of all power, of all capability, of all strength. Here I am. And his call is to, to walk before him and be blameless. And Abram, in response to understanding who it is that he is in the presence of God, rightly so, falls on his face. Right? It's a posture of humility and a posture of worship. He falls on his face before God, and then God comes along and changes Abram's name. Now, the irony of kind of, and we've talked about this a little bit, that Abram's name means exalted father, or glorious father. And here's the man who had no kids until he was 84, right? And then he had this, or 86, excuse me, then Ishmael was born, but he still has no kids with his wife, Sarai. But God changes his name from exalted father to Abraham, which means fathers of a multitude, father of a multitude, not just a great father, but a father with so many kids out there. This is not just a subtle change, but this idea of, hey, this this overwhelming blessing that will come into your life for a man who still does not have a child with his wife. And God talks about how he's going to establish with Abraham an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant, this points to the spiritual dimensions of what God was doing with Abraham, that God was making him his people, that God is someone who enters into a covenant relationship with his people. And This idea is picked up that, that all who belong to God are part of this family, actually in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter three, Paul writes this. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It looks back to this passage, that if you belong to Jesus, you are part of this everlasting covenant that God made with Abraham. You are now in it through what Jesus has done. If you grew up in Sunday school like me, do you remember the song, Father Abraham? Had many sons, I'm one of them and so are you. And then you like do all the crazy dance, which I should have invited Shani up and she could have led us in it this morning. I told my wife I was gonna reference that song. She's like, Caleb doesn't normally sing those songs. That's what I was like. No, no, I'm, Caleb's not gonna sing it. I'm gonna, all right. But this idea, right, that all of us now in Jesus are part of this covenant that God has made with Abraham. This morning, we're gonna look at three keys to following after God, three keys to following God. And the first is this. When God shows up, he calls Abraham, he changes his name. The first key is this, is to live in light of our radical transformation. To live in light of our radical transformation. We see this pattern throughout God's relationship with Abraham is that God shows up, God makes this astounding change in Abraham's life, but then he calls Abraham to live into this amazing change that he has brought about. Right, that he has entered him into this covenant. So he calls Abraham to something. He's made him a promise. And so he changes his name before Abraham has ever even realized the results or seen the true fruit of this promise. God has already changed his name already and called Abraham to live in light of this astounding change that he has made. See, Abraham was brought into this covenant relationship with God. A few weeks ago, we looked at that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, if you remember, where it said Abram's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And sometimes the tension is, okay, if it was his faith, so then what was Abraham supposed to do? Well, the answer here is clear in verse 1, walk before me and be blameless, God said, I've entered into a covenant relationship with you that I have taken the initiative. I am the one who initiates it. Now it's up to you, Abraham, to live like it. To live like I have entered into something that is so astounding, it radically changes your life. But the blameless is not this idea necessarily of total perfection, but this wholehearted commitment to following after God. He says, I should be your singular pursuit because of what I have come and done for you. This changing of of name from Abram to Abraham signifies a change of character, a deep transformation. We see this throughout scripture when God's often about to do something big or does a radical change in someone's life. He changes their name to signify the inner transformation they have gone through. So it should be with us who are in Christ that this radical transformation that we've received from God should be seen in how we live our lives. That if we've been radically transformed by Jesus, our lives should look like it, and they should look different. There was a a series of videos that started going around, at least on my social media, the last, I think, month, maybe two, three weeks on Instagram and some other places. And it's basically people posting pictures and videos of what it looks like to live in California in the winter, Right, So they're at the beach, they're drinking wine, they're out with their friends, it's sunny, and the audio that plays over it for all these videos that they play is this. It says, people who live in California are living in a completely different reality than everyone else in the United States, and I don't think we talk about it enough. Right? We live in a completely different reality, and some of you have lived here your whole lives, and you're like, what? there's other people who it's not 70 in February, right? My life for the last 20 plus years was lived in the winter in a completely different reality than what we live in here. Now, it is a blessing to be on this side of the reality of what winter in California looks like. Where I was from before in the Midwest, to leave your house in the winter was like a 20-minute experience just to get dressed. You had socks, the wool socks. You had underwear, like the the thick stuff that went all the way down your legs. You had layers that you put on. You had winter jackets. You had hats. You had gloves. I had this whole section of my wardrobe that hasn't been touched since I moved to California, and it's amazing. I perfectly love it. But how silly would I look since my reality has changed? I used to be there. Now I'm here. How silly would I look if I still dressed the same? If I showed up every day with my huge winter coat on and my gloves and my hat, and you're like, dude, it's going to be 75 today. Why Why are you wearing that? Like some of you are like, it was really cold this week. It was, and then the sun came out and it, got, and it was fine. All right, we all need to relax. But here's the thing. Of course, of course, I would dress and live differently because I'm here. And it's this idea of this. If we are in Jesus, of course, our lives should look different this newness of life. We shouldn't live in sin, but of course we should live in light of this change that God has brought about in our lives. Paul highlights this in Romans chapter six. He says this, what shall shall we say then? Are we to continue to live in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so Abram is called to live in light of this radical transformation that God has made in him. And so should we, to live in light of who we are in Jesus. And this astounding change that we have experienced when we encounter him and he transforms us our heart to live in light of that reality. God is with Abram and he continues in verse nine. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so God does what he often does throughout scripture when a covenant relationship is entered into, is he gives his people a visible and outward sign or symbol of the covenant that God has made with them. If you think through history, God has often done this when he makes covenants. When he made this covenant with Noah that he would never flood the earth again, he gave them a sign of the covenant of God's faithfulness, which was the rainbow, a sign of God's faithfulness to him. Actually, when he established his covenant with the people of Israel years later, the Sabbath, this day of rest, was to be a sign of the covenant that God made. He said, listen, I'm gonna be so faithful to you, you can take a whole day off and do nothing because I'm faithful to you. And that's a radical sign of my faithfulness. And so circumcision is to be the sign for Abraham and for his people of this new covenant relationship that they have with God. Now, this is not actually an entirely uncommon practice in the ancient world, but now God has given it a much deeper and significant meaning. This idea of of a sign pointing to a deeper reality is, is very common even in our world. For most of us, not necessarily all of us, I would say, but for most of us, if we are married, we wear on our hands a sign of the covenant relationship that we have entered into with someone else. Now, it's important here as we look throughout history in this idea of, of circumcision that the sign itself entering in and having the sign and doing the sign is not what's saved but pointed to the inner spiritual reality of the heart. Just as if if you lose your wedding ring, you don't suddenly become single. You've just lost your wedding ring, all right? This is actually not the ring I got when I was married. I was speaking on a rafting trip at a camp about six, seven years ago, fell in the water, came up, grabbed, was on the raft, and I was like, well, there it goes. Now, I did not call my wife up that night and go, honey, are we still married? No, right? It's, it's just a sign of the inner, of the inner self. And so when, when the New Testament talks about this, it, it, it takes this concept and talks about the circumcision of the heart. What really matters is the inner change inside, which is actually why in Galatians, Paul says, in Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything. And so there's this, this outward sign that they're supposed to do. Verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men in his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Two things stand out in these six verses. First is the totality of what Abraham does. Notice how it keeps mentioning words like all and every person in his house, everyone bought with his money, all of the men, every single one went and Abraham had this done. Secondly is the, the urgency, the speed in which this is done in verse 23 and in 26, it makes sure to mention to us that very day, that very day, Abraham went and did what God had called him to do. See, the second key in following God is to understand the urgency of obedience, to understand the urgency of obedience when we follow after God. God came and told Abraham, this is what I need you to do. And Abraham's response was total and immediate obedience to what God had for him. Is this how we obey God? Does this characterize our, in your own life, does this characterize your obedience to God? When, when you read scripture, When the Holy Spirit convicts us is our response total and immediate because so often, and I know this is true in my own life, so often it's not. Too often we treat scripture like it's a menu at a restaurant and we can go in and we can pick our couple favorite things that we want to work on and leave the rest for some time else. And we're like, well, yeah, the fruit of the spirit, that's like, I can pick my two favorite ones, right? Like I like strawberries and grapes. The rest of them I can do another time, right? Like I don't need all of that. We, we pick and choose what we want to live into. And sometimes we can just kind of leave other things at the side, not realizing that I think for all of us, there will always be things in the Christian life that will challenge us and push us, that there will always be areas of our lives that we'll need to be surrendering to him. Oftentimes our our obedience to God isn't an urgent enough matter in our lives. It's like when you ask your kids, hey, can you take out the trash? And their response is, yeah, 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 I'll do it in a minute. Parents, what does that mean? You're like, okay, let me start a stopwatch and see how long this takes, right? Like your version of a minute is different than my version of a minute, right? Like five days later, they go and take out the trash, and our response too often when God calls us to something is, yeah, yeah, I'll do it in a minute, God. I'll do it in a minute, but, but let, me, let me do this right now. Let, let, me, let me do this. I'm struck by how Abraham is called to this kind of extreme radical thing in that very, very day he goes and he doesn't. See, here's the reality. When our obedience is not total and immediate, when we're not walking in obedience to God, we miss out on the blessings of obedience. We miss out on the blessings of obedience. I love this comparison. It's a well-known illustration that C.S. Lewis used. And he talked about how so often as human beings, we are like kids playing in the mud when a vacation at the sea is offered to us. And when we aren't urgent to, to obey God, see, God calls us to obedience. And when God calls us to obey, it always is for our benefit. It may be difficult, it may be challenging, it may be hard in the season, but it's always for our best to walk in obedience to God. And when we delay it, when we only kind of obey, the person that suffers the most is us. We don't get to walk in the blessings of what it looks like to follow God in our lives. And so whatever... God is calling us to whatever God is calling you to, may our response be yes, and I will do it now. Not well, maybe I'll do it and I'll get to it sometime, but but that we would too understand this urgency of obeying what God has called us to. We're gonna jump back into verse 15 in chapter 17, just after God has has called Abraham to this sign of circumcision. Verse 15. And God said to Abraham, "'As for Sarai, your wife, "'you shall not call her name Sarai, "'but Sarah shall be her name. "'I will bless her, and moreover, "'I will give you a son by her. "'I will bless her, and she shall become nations. "'Kings of peoples shall come from her.' "'Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed "'and said to himself, "'Shall a child be born to a man who is a 100 years old?' Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And so like Abraham, Sarah's name is changed. Both of those actually mean princess, but this significance, right? That something is coming for Sarah as well. And God, for the very first time, it's been hinted throughout, but for the very first time says, no, Abraham, through Sarah is who I'm talking about. And Abraham's response, like he falls on his face as he has before when he got, and what does he do? He laughs. He's like, that's just ridiculous. That's too much. I cannot contain myself. It's craziness, right? How about Ishmael? He's already here. He's a teenager. God, just use him. And God says, no, 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 no. I have my plan. Ishmael will be blessed. Yes, he will receive a part of the blessing, but my everlasting covenant comes through Sarah to Isaac. Isaac, whose name means laughter. Laughter, this this response for all of Abraham's life of what his response was to God. And God said, you wanna laugh at what you think I can do? I'm gonna give you a permanent reminder in your son whose name is laughter. Chapter 18, verse one. At the end of 17, they went, they did the sign of the covenant. So this is sometime later, although just by the the phrasing of it, it must be still somewhat soon after chapter 17. Chapter 18, verse 1 The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought. And wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come since you have come to your servant so they said do as you have said and Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So Mamre has already been mentioned. It's the same place that Abraham has already made an altar to God back in Genesis chapter 13. And it's likely, commentators think, that when these guests first arrive, that Abraham does not fully realize who they are. He probably doesn't fully realize that this is God. His response here is quite stark and different from the other places where he encounters and meets God, and so he rushes out to them. Now, this is a time and a culture, I'm gonna talk about this a lot more next week as well, where hospitality is one of the highest virtues. And this continues in lots of ancient Near Eastern cultures that hospitality is the most important thing. When you read through the New Testament, it's just highlighted over and over again, this idea of hospitality. But Abraham here is not just a good host. The, the highlight here is how like, excessive, excessively hospitable he is. Do you notice all the words to describe the the action? How quick, how he runs, how fast he does it. He gets a tender and a good calf. He's getting the best and he's doing it as fast as he can. And he goes out, this meal is presented. There's their tent there. They're outside the tents. They're under the tree at the shade. And Abram presents this meal to these guests who are there eating. Verse nine, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? no one has ever mentioned his wife or her name. And Abraham at this point is probably like, oh, these aren't just three dudes wandering through the wilderness. Like I know who this is. And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And we can't blame Sarah. We all would do this too, right? We're like, hey, what's going on in there, right? Like you didn't see your kids every time they shut the door, right? Like what's going on in there? I wanna listen in. Sarah's eavesdropping, overlooking. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, in case you didn't remember, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out, And my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. The reminder here that's highlighted, especially in verses 11 and 12, is just of the utter ridiculousness of the situation, right? Verse 11, Abraham and Sarah are old, in case that's not enough, advanced in years, in case that's not enough. She can't have kids anymore. 90-year-olds don't give birth. That's not a medical problem they have. Lots of other medical problems sometimes, but not childbirth at 90, Right? And then verse 12, Sarah describing herself is three negatives of her own physical condition. This cannot happen to me. I am too old. And yet in God's reply, he takes these out and says, yes, yes, this can happen. See, the third key to following God is to trust in God's power and provision. To trust in God's power and provision for his people. See, God here shows up and says, okay, this situation has been ongoing for decades. It's now going to change. The timeline is in effect, right? This is the end is in sight. Trust in me that the end is in sight. God says that I'm going to do something through my power only that you could never have on your own. That's why it's significant when we started this passage that God identifies himself in chapter 17 as God Almighty. the author is making sure that we know in the story of Abraham and Sarah, God hasn't been getting ready for 24 years to muster up his strength so that he's now strong enough to do something for them. God was powerful enough all along. And it's an error to think that if God could change something, he would. Scripture doesn't allow us that fact. God is powerful. God is God Almighty. He is sovereign over all things and the impossibility of their situation is highlighted. And God simply has one response to them in verse 14. Is there anything too hard for me? Is there anything too hard for me? Is there anything that's impossible with God? See, God is a God who specializes in the impossible. That's why Jesus himself, when he was on earth, said, yes, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And Abraham and Sarah were in this situation that in their life was decades in the making. Such hurt, such pain that they thought this can never be fixed, this can never be resolved. And God shows up and says, on your own, you are absolutely right. But if I show up, something can change. Nothing's too hard for me. And there's some of us who are here this morning who are in situations, maybe in situations that we've been in for decades that seem impossible. It seems utterly hopeless. When you look at your marriage, when you look at a relationship with your kids, when you look at your own life and the mess that you've made of it, the sin that has so consumed you, And you could say, listen, this this is impossible. And on your own, you are absolutely right. But with God, nothing's impossible. Nothing is too hard for him. And I don't know what impossible situation you are facing today. If you're staring down the weight of your sin and saying, could God ever forgive me? I would say, well, is, is anything too hard for God? if you're looking at your marriage and saying, could God ever redeem this? Is is anything impossible for God? Could God ever restore this relationship? Could God ever make me whole again? Is anything too hard for God? The answer is no. And the call on us is to trust, to trust in God's power in those deep places in our hearts, in our lives, that pain, that heartbreak where it seems impossible, to trust that on our own it is, but with God, nothing is impossible. God, we thank you that you are the God of the impossible, that in situations where there seems to be no hope and no way, you have shown over and over and over again through history, through your word, through our own lives, that you are a God who brings hope in hopeless situations you make a way when we can't see any way to happen. God, and I pray for anyone here this morning who finds themselves staring at the impossible. If it's looking at the own hurt, the pain, the sin in their life, would they trust in your total and complete forgiveness that's offered through Jesus Christ? If it's a relationship, would they trust that you are a God who can restore all things? God, whatever it is, we trust in you. We trust in your power. We trust in your provision. And we praise you while we wait in anticipation of what you and only you can do in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.